How do you know if it's time to quit? The subtle art of quiet quitting. Eight red flags of a toxic workplace. What's the happiest job in the world and how does it compare to yours? Does that mean every scientist should quit? The thoughts expressed in this podcast are my own views and opinions. They do not reflect the values of my employers. Hello, welcome to the Crossover Connections with Jack Wayne podcast. On this podcast, we talked about the business of science and how it relates to the latest headlines. The last episode, we talked about the highest of highs in the field of science, winning a Nobel Prize for chemistry, medicine, and physics. And today, we're going to be talking about the lowest of the lows. How do you know if you've hit rock bottom in your career and how do you move on and quit gracefully without burning bridges, but instead building bridges? And one of the most informative sources comes from the host of A Diary of a CEO, hosted by Stephen Bartlett, who is not only an entrepreneur of multi-million dollar businesses, but he's also on the UK's Dragon's Den or Shark Tank, if you're a US viewer or listener. And a few years ago, he published a book in which he outlined what he calls Stephen Bartlett's Quitting Framework. And today we're going to go through this quitting framework and look at it through the lens of a scientist who's worked in a number of scientific workplaces. I'm a microbiologist, college professor, along with being a YouTuber and podcaster. So hopefully my perspective would shed light on how scientific workplaces and scientific careers can be transposed onto this kind of framework, which I think typically goes to some people's nine to five job. Are you thinking about quitting? And if the answer is yes, the question then becomes, why are you thinking about quitting? It could go one of two ways. It's either the thing that you're doing is very hard or the thing that you're doing sucks. If the job that you're doing is too hard, is the challenge worth the potential reward? If the challenge of the problem is worth the reward, then of course you keep going. But if you don't feel like that reward or potential reward is worth overcoming the challenge, then you should quit. This branch of the decision tree on whether or not to quit is very dicey for scientists because in the last episode, all of the Nobel Prize laureates and winners without question, without exclusion, their discoveries happened 30 years before they were awarded the Nobel Prize. The follow-on applications from their work weren't even done by them, they were done by other scientists. The potential reward is decades in the future. So in the moment, if you're in a bad workplace, it's very difficult to see the lure of a potential reward as a reason for staying. If the challenge of a scientific workplace solving a problem, trying to drive innovation in a way that no one in the world has ever done before. If you don't see that intellectual puzzle as being worthwhile on its own and you're looking for some other intangible outcome, reward, whether it be monetary or recognition, that is not gonna come in the short term. Does that mean every scientist should quit? That's not what I'm saying. You need to give yourself a looser definition and a broader definition of what a reward counts as in science. It won't be monetary in all likelihood. It will probably have to be personal and intellectual satisfaction and hopefully you're working in an environment where your peers and your supervisor and your boss are very supportive and that team mentality that fosters networking and collaboration that should be the reward that propels you forward and the process of solving puzzles is actually the biggest reward that we get as scientists many scientists could through their intellect and talent alone, find a very lucrative career in other areas like finance or business, but they have chosen some area of innovation where no one has broken through before. So the rewards that we're looking for often are not money. It would be nice if there was money and a lot more of it, but often we're looking for some itch to scratch, some intellectual puzzle to unlock that we think we have the answer to. And that is the potential reward that will always be there. For me, certainly the challenge of solving intellectual curiosities on a daily basis definitely is worth the potential reward. And for that reason, I, I haven't quit yet as a scientist, although you never know. The next branch of 
why are you thinking about quitting in this quitting framework is, hey, the process just sucks, right? The experience of working in this environment just sucks. And then there's two more decisions from here. It's, do you believe that you have the knowledge to make the process not suck? Is the effort worth going that extra step to make it not suck? Do you have the ability to improve your circumstances? And if you do have the ability, is it worth your time and effort? And in this case, if you answered no in either of these questions, either no, you don't believe you could make it not suck, then you should quit. Is the effort to make it not suck worth your time and resources? If the answer to that is no, then you should quit as well. Why does science suck? Because it is defined by failure. Out of all the sports, it is the closest parallel to baseball. If you have a hitting percentage of close to 30%, you're considered to be a world-renowned home run hitter, a maestro in this field. The sad thing is scientists have a hit rate even lower than that. I think conservatively, one out of every 10 experiments probably works. If you're not emotionally adaptable to accept the reality of how infrequently experiments work out, then you are not able to cope with the suckiness of science to make it sound highly technical, of course. So then it becomes incumbent upon the mentor, the supervisor or the boss, infuse your research and scientific environment with that understanding. It's about managing expectations. As a supervisor, you need to go in and say, look, nine out of 10 times, everything you do will fail. But it's my job to make sure you understand how to learn the most you can from those nine failures so that when you do get the one true success that comes along, the one experiment that works, you know how to interpret the right signals you don't lose that result amongst all of the other noise. That's my job. You could argue it's also the job of the supervisor to maybe provide some level of emotional support, some type of camaraderie, building a team environment, any individual researcher so that it feels collaborative, that any single failure doesn't feel like it's one person's specific fault. And it's a big responsibility. It's not a small thing. Is the effort it would take to make it not suck worth it? The reward, again, has to be that intellectual curiosity, has to be the ability to face new problems. I do know many scientists who have this to quit science but stayed in science long enough to extract all the most valuable skills from the whole process and whatever they've gone on to business law consultancy they are much more effective at those roles than people without a scientific training because they are able to adapt and respond to signals from the experiments they're conducting within a new context and to make the right decision going forward. So I think the quitting framework implies that we should be quitting more frequently than we are traditionally led to believe we should. You shouldn't really be quitting until you see some kind of tangible result. In science, the timeline for accepting what counts as failure has to be longer because again, nine out of 10 things you do in science conservatively will fail. The previous episode, which is linked here if you're watching the video portion of the podcast, talks about all the Nobel laureates and all the 10, 20, 30 years they had to wait until their research was recognized. Nobel Prize winner for medicine, Catalin Carrico was actually demoted instead of promoted four times. And all of them talk about the resiliency they had to forge on their way to making a discovery that would change the course of their field. So within our field, quitting is not so simple to read the signs because we probably don't have the leverage to be able to make the process not suck by ourselves. And there's a lot of effort involved in overcoming any kind of suckiness or any kind of challenge. And the rewards are largely internal. They're not external or extrinsic, all of these things need to be given a longer runway. Maybe not 10, 20, 30 years, but you do have to be at peace with all of these variables. The average number of careers most people have in this day and age is three to five. I'm not talking about three to five jobs. I'm talking about three to five completely different careers doing completely different things. If you quit, you should try 
to form new bridges rather than to burn them. And the best way of doing that is to make sure you've got a tangible outcome before you quit. That outcome can be something very concrete, like a publication, presentation at some public venue, a reference from someone in the lab, someone in your research environment, something tangible that you leave with. Try and leave in a relative position of strength rather than leave feeling like it was a complete waste of your time, a complete bust, and you aren't able to explain at your next job exactly why you left the current job that you're holding and thinking about quitting. Quitting has been around for a very long time, but it has caught the buzz like many things these days because of TikTok. The phrase quiet quitting has really emerged and taken over large swaths of TikToks. And this article talks about three millennials outlining their experience of quiet quitting because they don't want to overwork themselves anymore. A real dangerous phenomenon or a really healthy phenomenon depending on who you speak to obviously the bosses the ceos think quiet quitting is very dangerous because quiet quitting essentially means you will do the bare minimum you will do all the legally mandated hours you will do what is asked of you but nothing more, nothing less. You're not gonna go the extra mile. You're not gonna try and answer emails or pick up the phone after hours. You do your job and that's it. On one hand, yes, that's very good for your work-life balance, but from the scientific workplaces that I've been around, this is not compatible because your experiments will fail so frequently that it is those after hours decisions and that after hour work that will let you make slightly less failure ridden decisions and increase your success by maybe five to 10% of the time, which will save you a whole lot of time. It doesn't have to be for your whole career, but certainly in the early days of a scientific career, you need to spend the cognitive effort to really think about what you're doing to minimize your chance of having so many failures every single day. The idea of quiet quitting is described in a slightly different manner, of course, by some people. One of these millennials says, quietly quitting comes back to setting your boundaries about what your outputs are going to look like at work. And for some, that might mean doing the bare minimum, but for others, it just means not burning out. You could call quiet quitting by a number of different names. The comedian Josh Gondelman on Twitter talks about quiet quitting as essentially mailing it in, putting in a token effort. The idea of trying to strive for work-life balance is an admirable one. I would love being able to achieve work-life balance and still finding success in my career. Scientists are in a field where work-life balance doesn't really exist in a tangible, meaningful, and more importantly, consistent way for everyone. One person's idea of balance is very, very different to another person's idea of balance. Quiet quitting, you could say there's nothing legally wrong with it because they're doing the minimum. It can very easily trigger some underlying insecurity you have about your work fall into what's called loud quitting. This transition can happen imperceptibly. You are going through the process of quiet quitting because at some level, you're not satisfied with your job. Over a long enough period of time, when people are noticing that you're not maybe giving your all, you're not as all in as you should be or as all in as you were at the start of your job, the workplace will become a little tighter, a little bit more uncomfortable for you. Before you know it, you could feel like you're more dissatisfied at your workplace than you ever were before in a blink of an eye. And in fact, one in five employees, according to the study, are what we call loud quitting. What is loud quitting? Some point along the way, the trust between employee and employer was severely broken or the employee has been woefully mismatched to a role. And loud quitters directly harmed the organization, undercutting its goals, opposing its leaders, and only 23% of survey respondents consider themselves to be thriving or engaged at work. So line between quiet quitting and loud quitting is very, very thin. We can all step into loud quitting 
maybe accidentally, if you're feeling particularly disgruntled and it's bringing up all of these implicit feelings up to the surface against your will potentially, just having a tough day at work or the insecurities or the reasons you haven't been putting in the full effort just manifest themselves. It really is quite a risky proposition for you. Before you know it, you could become quite belligerent at work and your progress can be stored. That's the risk with quiet quitting. It can veer into loud quitting before you know it. Within a scientific perspective, it is very hard to do the bare minimum and get by. The experiments take so long to do by and large. The amount of cognitive processes, the amount of thought that needs to go to doing very, very simple experiments day in, day out. That is not something you can put on the back burner. And also things are always changing, right? Innovation is defined by how little things stay the same over time. You can't just stay still, quietly quit and still seem like you're doing a, a reasonable job. The system will flush those out. And this article highlights the major risk to an organization that loud quitting signals and it should not be ignored and actively disengaged employees will not only make themselves have a worse time at work, they will also influence all those around them and make it harder for them to do their jobs. This is now bled over into a phenomenon on the employer side called quiet cutting. If we follow the trajectory, quiet quitting can bleed over into loud quitting and loud quitting is the instigator for employers to launch quiet cutting. What is quiet cutting? Very simply put, a role reassignment, change of an employee while serving continuously within the same agency from one position to another without promotion or demotion. Reassignments can be made with an insidious underlying intent to quietly cut them without paying costly severance packages. Meta, when they were firing and making all these layoffs last year and this year to all their employees, they had to pay out $4.2 billion in terms of restructuring costs with a large chunk of that going towards severance packages for employees that had to fire. But if employees were quitting, then all of those severance packages no longer becomes an issue. They don't have to pay it. So what could they do to force you to quit of your own volition? Three things, apparently. If your reassignment is well below the pay or skill level you currently have, so it makes you feel like you're not being utilized to your fullest. Secondly, they could force you to relocate when your boss knows very clearly that you don't have the flexibility to do that at the present point in time. You either have family or care responsibilities or you can't afford to do so. That could be another way to force you to look for a different job. Or they could put you in a division that is rumored to be axed next. And if the whole division is rumored to be axed, you might want to leave first and beat the rush of people who are going to be axed to try and be the first one to find a job and land on your feet. These are all signs that you're on the end of a quiet cut. Someone argued that it doesn't matter what you do, if you're quietly quit or loudly quit, if a company is going to cut jobs, maybe that just comes from a report they farm out to McKinsey or Bain, one of these consultancy companies to tell them, hey, you need to cut 10% of your workforce. But nevertheless, that's out of your control to a large extent. What you can control is to make sure your actions don't directly lead you to be the victim of a quiet cut. Again, quiet quitting is a stone's throw away from loud quitting, which is not that far away from quiet cuts. And before you know it, you have to reinvent yourself all over again. And in science, quiet cutting is not really a thing because a lot of our work is funded by grants that have a natural built-in expiry date. Many of our salaries are paid by fellowships, which again have a built-in expiry date, three years, five years if you're really, really lucky. So at the end of the five years, if you haven't proven your worth, you haven't published enough papers, you haven't attracted even more funding, hey, they don't have to pay you any severance. You were only ever a contract employee. The sector is full of quiet cutting by default really does you no good to quietly quit because you will be judged by the system 
implicitly at the end of the process. So I wouldn't recommend that you quietly quit. I'll recommend that you see an exit and you map out the KPIs that you want to meet before you get to that exit and try and leave with as much leverage and career capital that you have to step up to another opportunity. But what if you don't have the luxury to wait for that and you are in what is called a quote-unquote toxic work environment. This is an article from Forbes that talks through eight lesser known red flags of a toxic work environment. And I'm going to see how many of these line up with a scientific workplace. Red flag number one, a lack of transparency. A major red flag for a toxic work environment is a lack of transparency because every employee needs to know how a company they work for is doing and how what they're working on is contributing to the larger picture. Red flag number two is unmotivated co-workers. If there's ineffective communication, low trust and respect for one another, staff or growth, clicks and bias treatment. These could all be a red flag that you're working in a toxic environment. These first two red flags, a lack of transparency and unmotivated co-workers go hand in hand. A lot of science labs are ruled by intellectual property and different researchers in the same group are working on different projects with different intellectual property. So legally, they shouldn't be co collaborating. They shouldn't actually know what's going on in the other research project because there's all of these other intellectual property implications on who owns the discovery if it ever goes to market. Legally, they can't know what's going on. In that kind of environment, there could be more secrecy. There could be a little bit less trust. Doesn't really breed an environment of collegiality. It breeds an environment of very competitive internal politicking. This is kind of baked into decay when you're trying to push the envelope and you're trying to innovate and you're trying to win the race on a global level. Yes, this is clearly a red flag that the work environment is not a stress-free one, but this should not be the deterrent for you to go into science. This is kind of built into the fabric of the industry that it's very, very competitive, but it's also very, very exciting. It's a dual-edged sword. Red flag three, no recognition for your work. Employees aren't given recognition for their work which diminishes motivation and morale over time. And four, the manager has a poor attitude. A negative boss can make even the most enjoyable job miserable. So those two things are connected. No recognition for your work. Recognition likely comes from your boss in some capacity. And four, manager has a poor attitude, however you want to define poor attitude. This is where I think mentors and supervisors can make the biggest impact to our sector because again, you need to set a culture of acceptable failure of learning from failure, of digesting and analyzing the outcome from any single failure, because there's going to be a lot of them. You need to be that emotional bedrock for the people that you're supervising and hiring. And it's a very big job. I can't say I'm particularly great at it. I'm trying, I'm doing the best I can, but a lot of supervisors just don't have the time or the capacity or the training to really engage in that. Something like mental health first aid. This is all something that supervisors and, and bosses could really benefit from. And I think is a core part of a lot of leadership training that could be taken. The recognition for your work, you have to think about where that is going to come from in any job that you're in. Luckily for us, a lot of the recognition is in the public domain. If you're publishing papers, it's there. You can Google it. If you're giving a conference talk, you can see the conference talk many a time on a recording on YouTube or TED Talk. The artifact is there. Your LinkedIn post is there. Your paper is there. So recognition is one of the most transparent things. So then it's not the extrinsic recognition of your work. Is that intrinsic recognition that you're doing a good job. Yes, should come from your boss at some level, but it needs to be coming intrinsically from yourself. You need to know within your bones what counts as success to you because the system will never be able to fill that hole for you. The system is one that always wants more, 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 and all workplaces want more, more, more. So having a good center of balance as to what you consider to be success 
and what kind of people you choose to surround yourself with. That is what I would focus on. Red flags five and six are also connected. No clear direction on your projects. Managers aren't giving you a clear sense of direction. There's some level of micromanaging or not enough micromanaging and unstable work-life balance. If the project direction keeps changing, timelines will start spiraling out of control. You won't be able to meet deadlines. Before you know it, you don't have a good work-life balance. And this is also connected to red flags seven and eight. Scope creep, where the slow process over time, more work, work, unnecessary requests, or expand beyond your contract's initial bounds. And it could fold onto the request to multitask more and more and more and more. During meetings, you should be doing this other thing and it's never enough, never enough. This is all something that's very commonly found in scientific environments. Work-life balance or a lack of it, always need to do more beyond what you're asked. So having to multitask to be able to fit everything in. But if I can push back for a moment on how much of a red flag these supposed red flags are, the idea of scope creep is an interesting one. In science, you are the one, you should be the one to define the scope. That is what people are hiring you to do. They're hiring you to be the intelligentsia that will push the thinking envelope forward in your discipline. You should be the one to constantly be expanding the scope. And this ties back to another red flag where there's no clear direction. Over time, as the boss, I should no longer have to give a scientist that much direction because they should be telling me how they can be most effective at their jobs. If you're feeling like you're being micromanaged a lot and there's no clear direction on projects and the scope of what you're doing doesn't seem to be within your control, yet you could be in a toxic work environment. But secondly, I think you should think about why you don't have more control over your project why you are not dictating the scope of the parameters of what you're doing day in, day out, because you should be aspiring to be a leader in the field. Think about what you can control, how much of that is really within your grasp and how much of that is something that you should really think about finding a new workplace to let you thrive in at a higher level. Amidst all of this talk of negativity of all these jobs that aren't particularly great and toxic and detoxing and quiet quitting, loud quitting, let's look at the other end of the spectrum. What is the happiest job in the world? Because according to this new research, you get to see the fruits of your labor. Construction workers have the highest level of self-reported happiness of any major industry category, according to a survey of over 57,000 employees from 1,600 companies. And the reasons that they cite construction work as being the most happy profession, there is an interpersonal element of the job on construction sites, widely recognized for strong bonds among on-site personnel. They also have the ability to access a wide swath of professional organizations and other analogous industries to help them up skill, they can build meaningful relationships with co-workers. Can we take that lesson away from construction work and imbue it into scientific workplaces? Can we foster a more collaborative environment? Can we give people more visibility as to the different types of skills they can learn? Can we also allow them to feel like they're always moving towards something, that they're never stuck, they're always progressing towards innovation? I think these are the ingredients that we can take on board in any kind of work that we're doing. And in science, we certainly shouldn't all quit irrespective of the difficulties and overcoming failure and having to mitigate all of those insecurities and emotional toll. I think keeping these three things in mind, feeling like you're moving towards a direction of any sort, being part of a collaborative team and being able to learn something new every single day. I think these things will allow us to thrive and survive for much longer in these very important sectors in science, discovery and innovation. The ideas of job interviews and how scientists in particular struggle with job interviews and how we can bounce back. You can find that video linked up here. I'm Jack, hope to connect with you again in the next episode.